Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Seems Like Diet Culture podcast. If you are new here, welcome. My name is Mallory Page, and I am a registered dietitian, and I am the host of this podcast, which I created because I wanted a space to be able to discuss wellness, nutrition, current events, recovery, and more in a non-diet way. There's just a lot of diet culture circulating around in our day-to-day life, whether you hear it at the grocery store or you see it on social media or anywhere else. And a lot of the time, we don't have another side to the diet culture information. We don't get exposed to the non-diet viewpoint. And I hope that this podcast can be an evidence-based, logic-based resource for you that talks about things in a non-diet way. Now, today's episode falls under the current events category, and I'm sharing about this because every single time that new information comes out, I get asked about it as a dietitian. And it's interesting because a lot of topics I don't get asked about that much within my friendships or other relationships that are outside of social media, but this topic in particular is what I get asked about the most, and it just feels like a very pressing event that we are dealing with currently in the wellness, nutrition, health world, and that is Ozempic. Now, I have already made one Ozempic episode that does an intro deep dive, so I will have that linked in the show notes, and I highly suggest listening to that if you are unaware of Ozempic, what it was created for, why it was created, because that's where I go over that information. And this episode, we are actually going to be talking about these recent claims of Ozempic causing stomach paralysis and other co-occurring issues. Now, I want to first start off with a disclaimer that I am not a expert in Ozempic, I am a dietitian, so I have gone through schooling around nutrition and around health-based things, but this episode is not me recommending or not recommending Ozempic. This is nothing that you need to take into your life and then apply. It is simply me discussing some of the recent claims that have come out, giving you a deeper explanation on why these things could be coming out, what could be going on, what these conditions mean, and then giving you a little bit of an intro to how these things connect with diet culture because, as you know, this episode or this podcast, I mean, is called Seems Like Diet Culture, so I want to tie it in there as well. Now, I want to dive into this episode, but first I want to do a super quick announcement because my signature program, Live Unrestricted, is currently accepting applications for our last round of the year. If you are unfamiliar with the program, it is 12 weeks and it is designed to transform your relationship with food and body image. This is for someone that feels like they probably are really self-aware, they know what's going on, but they don't know how to take the steps forward. And they're in this space in their life where they're not as challenged as they used to be with food and body image, but they're not where they want to be either. And they don't feel like they have this full freedom. And it makes them wonder if they're the exception to healing and if this is just as good as it's going to get. And they 
want to be able to break out of these constant thoughts around food and body image, but they just don't know exactly what to do. If you resonate with that, Live Unrestricted could definitely be for you. And the process for applying and going into the next steps is so simple. I will have the link to apply below as well as a ton of details about the course. And once you do that application, you are then directed to book a free consult call with me. It is a no-risk call because not everybody is the right fit for the program. So we're going to assess that on the call. Then we'll talk more about logistics of everything. And if it feels like a good fit, you'll be offered the opportunity to move forward. And you don't have to. It's only if it feels like it's going to be a good time and a good fit for you. So I hope to see some of your applications come in, DM me with any questions, or submit it at the uh, submit your questions or episodes idea area that's also in the show notes. All right, now it's time to dive into this episode. So you may be wondering why we're even talking about this. Well, it's because recently there has been news popping up of people who have been very deeply negatively impacted by Ozempic side effects. There appears to be some risk level with Ozempic exacerbating or catalyzing the development of gastroparesis and all the ugly side effects that can come along with that. So with how much Ozempic has been taking off in the past few years and how mainstream it's become, I want to be able to discuss this with you guys so that you have an idea of what's going on and know how to sift through the information that you're seeing. Now, I want to start off with the fact that due to the sheer number of people who have hopped on the Ozempic train, it's really not a huge surprise that we are hearing horror stories of the drug. And now before you think that I'm trying to be on the Ozempic hate train, please hear me out. I say this not because I'm trying to shade Ozempic specifically, but because whenever we have a drug come onto the market, especially one that is relatively new, there will always be a certain percentage of the population that experiences a very negative reaction to a drug. And we can never anticipate how small or large that percentage will be, but that is pretty much the nature of how these things go, unfortunately. I don't say that to downplay the severity of issues that people are experiencing, but I do say it to add some realistic context to the situation. Now, to dive into this more, Ozempic has only been around since 2017. There have been other GLP-1s that have been around since as early as 2005, but the drug that we all know about today is still very young. And yes, the word young is kind of weird in the medical field because to develop a drug, it usually takes between 6 to 15 years of that process and rigorous testing before it's even released. But even with that much time and that much testing, there is still an element of unknown when we're talking about drugs. And this mainly comes down to sheer numbers. Controlled trials can only test a drug on so many people. And even if they have a large sample size and the study is legitimate, when something releases to the public there is always going to be a risk that the drug will impact a certain percentage of the population in a life-altering and unforeseen way. Because we never know how a drug that was tested on thousands is going to potentially affect millions. 
So now that we have more of an understanding on why this can happen, let's dive into some of the unforeseen side effects that we are now seeing in Ozempic. So as I mentioned some earlier, the most recent accounts of negative side effects from Ozempic have been associated with a condition called gastroparesis. So let's break down this really quick. First of all, the word itself kind of describes the condition. Gastro means stomach and paresis means weakened or partially paralyzed. And the condition itself is essentially where your stomach is not properly functioning because the muscles are partially paralyzed. The way that this works is the muscles in the wall of the stomach work poorly or they don't work at all, and this slows or delays the rate at which food empties from the stomach into the intestine, and this is called delayed gastric emptying. In gastroparesis, gastric emptying is delayed because the muscles don't work effectively, not because a blockage prevents food from moving from the stomach into the intestine. Gastroparesis can have many different causes. One of the causes for gastroparesis is diabetes. The theorized mechanism for why gastroparesis occurs in diabetes patients is that high blood sugar damages the nerves of the stomach muscles, causing them to not work as well. It typically takes a long time for high blood sugar to cause nerve damage in diabetes patients, around 10 years or more. So that is typically around how long it would take someone for diabetes to develop this. Now, the risks for developing nerve damage only continues to increase after the first 10 years of the initial onset of diabetes and also with the problems in your stomach from the high blood sugar. And another thing that is worth noting within this relationship between the two is that it is actually a two-way relationship between blood sugar and gastric emptying. So although, yes, high blood sugar can lead to this delayed gastric emptying, also delayed gastric emptying can cause high blood sugar. So it's kind of a bit of the chicken or the egg type of situation. And according to the National Institute of Health, in some studies, up to 50% of people with diabetes have delayed gastric emptying, but most of these people have no digestive symptoms or they only have mild symptoms. And in some patients, problems managing blood glucose levels may be a sign of delayed gastric emptying. So the moral of the story here is that there is a relationship between diabetes and gastroparesis and that managing both blood sugar and gastroparesis symptoms are both very important when managing diabetes. Now, you may be wondering, why am I going on this whole thing about diabetes? Well, because managing blood sugar levels is actually the primary reason that people with diabetes take drugs like Ozempic, and Ozempic was created for diabetes patients. So that's the diabetes-gastroparesis relationship. There are other causes of gastroparesis that we haven't figured out yet, and there is also no current quote-unquote cure for the condition. We do have medical nutrition therapy to help manage symptoms, and if that doesn't help, there are some medications that can help to ease those symptoms, but there isn't a end-all, be-all answer to how we can solve this problem completely as of right now. The National Institute of Health has done studies as recent as 2022 
that estimates about 1.8% of the population has gastroparesis. The symptoms that someone would be experiencing that may have gastroparesis include the feeling of fullness shortly after starting to eat a meal, the inability to complete a regular meal, a sense of fullness that persists long after completing a meal, other symptoms such as abdominal pain, nausea, bloating, vomiting, heartburn, and a lack of appetite. And the way that they look at diagnosing this is often checking on how much food is left in the stomach four hours after a meal. So if you have a quote-unquote normally functioning stomach, there should be less than 10% of food in the stomach after that four-hour mark. If you have mild gastroparesis, it would be between 10 and 15%. Moderate would be 15 to 35%. And severe gastroparesis is anything over 35% after four hours. If you tie this all together, it does make sense that the symptoms correlate with what we've just described. Because if you have food in your stomach for a longer amount of time, you are naturally going to feel full continuously nauseous more easily, bloated, especially because you have food sitting in your stomach or GI tract that's not passing through at a quote-unquote normal rate, and overall you could just have feelings of discomfort. Now, I want to quickly mention and tie in a refresher on Ozempic. Ozempic works by mimicking a hormone that is naturally made in the body called GLP-1, and one of the roles of GLP-1 is to slow the passage of food through the stomach, which helps people feel fuller for longer. So you can already probably start to see a connection here between the gastroparesis and the ozempic, but let's now go into more of the claims specifically about ozempic and how they tie to gastroparesis. On July 25th of 2023, CNN released an article discussing several people's experiences with Ozempic or Wegovy and how they took a turn for the worst. Two women, Joni Knight, who was 37, and Emily Wright, who was 38, both report having developed severe gastroparesis, which their doctors believe to have been caused or exacerbated by their usage of Ozempic. Now, I do want to give a quick disclaimer here that in this section, I will be discussing GI distress, specifically vomiting. It's not extremely graphic, but it is something that we're talking about. So if that's something that you don't want to hear, you probably want to skip forward a little bit within this episode. First, we'll start with Emily Wright's journey. So she stated that the drug helped her to lose a lot of weight as well as manage her blood sugar, but it has come at a high price. She now vomits so frequently that she's had to take a leave of absence from her job as a teacher. And in September of 2020, Wright had to be hospitalized for dehydration related to vomiting. This caused doctors to push further and they did a gastric emptying study on her that showed gastroparesis. Wright was also diagnosed with cyclic vomiting syndrome, which caused her to throw up multiple times within a day. Joni Knight had a similar story. She went out to dinner one night after having a small portion of her meal and noticed she was completely unable to swallow her food because it felt like all the food was getting stuck in her throat. This led to a bout of violent vomiting. She went to a gastroenterologist who viewed her stomach with a camera and was able to determine that the issue was caused by her stomach being full of food. Initially, both of these women said that their doctors dismissed the pop 
possibility that it was ozempic that was causing their stomach problems but eventually Wright's condition deteriorated further and she started throwing up food that she had been eating three to four days prior and so finally a GI doctor said to her well I've been seeing a lot of patients coming in with full stomachs due to full stomachs on endoscopy who are on Ozempic. So let's try taking you off the Ozempic. So both Knight and Wright reported that their symptoms improved after going off of the drug, but they both still continued to struggle with the gastroparesis and vomiting. There was also a third woman by the name of Brenda Allen, who was 42. She also had not been diagnosed with gastroparesis, but she had experienced similar side effects from Ozempic. And she cites having severe problems even a year after stopping the drug, including recently having to go to urgent care to address dehydration from vomiting. This CNN article also shares that doctors say that more and more of these cases are coming to light as the popularity of the drug has soared. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration said that it has received several reports of people experiencing stomach paralysis that is sometimes not resolved by the time it's reported. So far, extreme and unrelenting cases like these are believed to be rare, and they may be a result of the drug unmasking or worsening that existing slow stomach that we were talking about with gastroparesis or pre-gastroparesis. And doctors do say that people can have a silent condition called delayed gastric emptying and not know it. There's nothing on these drug labels specifically, though, that caution that gastroparesis may occur when taking the drug. So CNN actually requested Novo Nordisk, who makes Exempic, to comment on this issue. And as their response, they pointed out that drugs in this class have been used for 15 years to treat diabetes and eight years to treat obesity. Not a word that I like to say, but a word that is used within this clinical scenario. And they have been extensively studied in the real world and in clinical trials. Gastrointestinal events are well-known side effects of the GLP-1 class, for semiglutide, the majority of GI side effects are mild to moderate in severity and of short duration. GLP-1s are known to cause a delay in gastric emptying, as noted in the label of each of our GLP-1 RA medications. Symptoms of delayed gastric emptying, nausea, and vomiting are listed as side effects. So essentially, that company says, look at the label. We talk about the fact that these things could happen. Even if we're not saying the gastroparesis can occur, we're laying out the symptoms that people are explaining. Now, you may be wondering what doctors as a whole think. And of course, we cannot pull every single doctor to understand. A doctor by the name of Dr. Michael Camilleri did speak to this. And he said that the current line of thought for the horror stories these three women are living through is that they are simply extremely unlucky with the level of severity of their side effects. He has done previous research on the effects of GLP-1s on gastric emptying, and he has found that users seem to adjust to the medication over time. And this means that as they continue the use of the drug, they would see a decrease in nausea and vomiting as their gastric emptying rate begins to increase again. 
And while it may still remain slower than the placebo groups when they have tested this, it would not stay as extremely slow as when you first start the drug. So Dr. Camilleri theorizes that it is conceivable that some patients may have borderline slow gastric emptying and starting one of the GLP-1 agonists may precipitate a full-blown gastroparesis. So these recent cases are obviously quite tricky. There is a possibility that these women already had beginning stages of gastroparesis and they were unaware or that they were going to develop gastroparesis regardless of taking Ozempic, and this simply worsened or catalyzed the process. But there is also the possibility that the Ozempic could have caused them to develop the gastroparesis, and we simply don't know which it is. All that we can do is take in the information that we have and assess what that means. So what does this mean for you? Well, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, I am not an expert in this, and this is not me giving you medical advice. This is just sharing some thoughts that I have. The situation basically comes down to the classic weighing the risk versus the benefits, which is a very common phrase in healthcare. And essentially what this means is that you have to look at all the risks associated with the medical intervention and decide if the risk of doing that intervention outweigh the risk of not doing that intervention. Just because a medical intervention exists doesn't always mean that that's the best choice for you. A very simple and kind of silly analogy for this to just show what I mean is if you get a minor injury, let's say that you twist your ankle or you have a small break in your ankle, but the doctors don't believe that you need a surgery. It does not seem that we need to do that. You could take the risk of doing a surgery, but you could also just go in a cast or get PT instead. And the risk of going onto an operating table and doing a surgery when you don't really need to is quite high versus not doing that and instead just doing some physical therapy or wearing the cast. So if you weigh the risk to benefit there, especially because the surgery isn't indicated as helpful, you can see that it's not the best choice to go under the knife to get surgery. Now, what's challenging about this is that we are a little vulnerable in these situations because of the fact that most of us trust our doctor to advise us on the safest path by providing us with all of the information on what the potential risks are. This may feel quite easy in a situation like the one I described with a minor break or a twisted ankle, but it can feel a lot more complicated when we're talking about something like Ozempic because it's very hard to appropriately weigh all of the risks versus the benefits when we don't even know what all of the risks are. So if you were to go to a doctor to talk about Ozempic, they are most likely going to inform you about all of the risks that are statistically significant, the things that we know about the drug, the contraindications to it, but it could take them all day to go over 
all of the potential risks. And even if they went over every single risk that we know of right now, it's not going to be every single risk that exists because we don't know every single risk when we're utilizing a drug at any time, but especially a drug that is much newer. And even if we knew everything about the drug, your doctor explained every single risk that could possibly happen, they informed you of all the contraindications, there is still the element that even if every single person in a world has taken a drug and had a positive experience, you could take that drug and have a negative one because we never know. Everyone is super unique and we all have varying experiences from what the quote-unquote norm is. So then when it comes down to making your own decisions surrounding Ozempic, hopefully the information that you gather on your own can help you to weigh the risks versus the benefits. To give an example of this, let's talk about who the drug is actually made for, which is clients with diabetes. So as I mentioned, Ozempic is specifically utilized to help clients that are struggling with managing their blood sugar. And someone may choose to go on Ozempic that is struggling with this because there are severe and very negative side effects and symptoms that come about from unmanaged blood sugar. So they may be taking into account all of those things that are negatively affecting them in their current condition, and they may look at the risks of Ozempic versus the potential benefits of Ozempic and say, yeah, this seems worth it to me. If I weigh what I'm dealing with now versus the things that could potentially happen from Ozempic, I feel more willing to potentially take that risk to get the positives from the drug than I do to stay where I'm at and not take Ozempic. So that's an example of what this can look like and how you can decide for you what is right. And of course, again, Decide these things with your doctor. Don't listen to this podcast and make this decision. That would not be the best thing to do. Now, with all of this being said, I first want to debrief on what we've discussed so that you feel confident in what you're taking away from this podcast about this information. What we have here are severe cases of GI distress, and we have these cases within clients that were or are taking Ozempic. When these clients went to the doctor, they saw gastroparesis and they saw delayed stomach emptying. And when these clients went off their Ozempic, they noticed moderate changes within their symptoms, but they are still feeling the effects as of current. These patients went on it for blood sugar management or weight loss. There were varying reasons as to why they did so. And there has been no way to say 100% what has caused either the symptoms that they initially experienced or the symptom improvement that they're experiencing now. With that being said, doctors as of current are saying that more and more people are coming in with these type of symptoms and many of these people are on Ozempic. Furthermore, we do know upon looking at the mechanism of Ozempic and gastroparesis that GLP-1 drugs, which is what Ozempic is, 
are delaying the emptying of your stomach. And although it is proposed that from clinical trials, we see that gastric emptying should increase again in speed after going on the drug for a longer amount of time, there is a chance that with the way that gastroparesis works, it may not go up enough for some clients. So all of this essentially means that we have no idea how to say if this is being caused by Ozempic or not. Correlation does not equal causation ever. But I think no matter what, this is a piece of information that you can take away and hopefully you feel more informed to know how to take into account everything that is being shared about Ozempic when you are making your decisions either around engaging with this or how you want to view people engaging with this. Or you shouldn't how you view people engaging with this, but how you view engaging with this in general and your thoughts on the drug. Now, I want to end on how this plays into diet culture. And a good starting place for this is exactly what we were just talking about, which is how Ozempic was originally made as a drug for diabetes. But as we see it now, let's be honest, most people are talking about it within the realm of weight loss. It's everywhere. And that's part of the reason why I'm making this episode, because so many people see it. So many people are affected by it. So many people are talking about it. And it's become so much more than what it started as. And the thing about diet culture is diet culture is inherently attached to weight stigma to fat phobia, and to society's obsession with being small. Diet culture essentially tells us that if our body looks a certain way, then everything will be better. Not just our health, but also our social status, our relationships. I mean, anything that you can imagine, diet culture tries to convince us that if we just make this change, it will be better. But the challenge about diet culture in and of itself is that diet culture is a never-ending race. So if you were to imagine running a marathon, diet culture is that process of getting towards the end of the marathon. And every time you come close to the finish line, the finish line moves in front of you. And the finish line moves in front of you so many times that you start to wonder if you are actually losing your mind. Because it seems like people around you are meeting the finish line. And it seems like no matter what you do, you are the only one that can't reach it. And so maybe the finish line isn't moving at all and you're just doing something wrong. And this really depicts what it feels like to have this never-ending pursuit of trying to achieve this body or achieve this level of health or achieve this status that diet culture promises us. Because no matter what you do, it will never be good enough within diet culture. There will always be another change that you need to make. There will always be another drug, another diet, another body that we're exemplifying. And the reason why that is is because these wellness companies at large. It's not even a specific company. It's the whole industry, which is, I believe now, valued over a trillion dollars. It wants to make money. And these wellness industries, they don't profit off of you feeling good about yourself. They profit off of you feeling like you're not enough. And if you can feel like you're not enough for your whole life, think about how much money they can make. If you feel accepting of your body, 
no matter what, they can't profit off of that the same way. So all of this is not to say that diet culture and Ozempic are related in every single way, or that the analogy that I just gave is the analogy that connects to Ozempic. What I'm hoping to describe with this is the experience of diet culture and how it can affect us. And I want to bring this to light so that any of you thinking about your viewpoints on Ozempic, thinking about engaging with it, or doing anything in your life can have an awareness on where diet culture may be seeping in. Because this drug was made for people with diabetes. And it has been life-altering for many people. And I would never shed any judgment on anyone's decision around this drug. Every person has complete and utter autonomy within their choice. But I do think taking into account the reason why you have your viewpoints on it or why you may want to engage or not engage with it is important because there are differences between engaging in something because your doctor has prescribed it for you due to your blood sugar and diabetes versus engaging with something even though your doctor told you not to engage in it because it was contraindicated because you're feeling pressures from diet culture. And there's also a big difference between judging people that are choosing to be on Ozempic in either scenario and choosing not to judge people because you understand that even if you have your own viewpoints, everyone has their autonomy. And I think the challenge with diet culture is that so much of the time, because diet culture in and of itself feels so judgmental, it can lead us to want to judge others. But I hope that this reminds you that everyone is suffering under these systems of diet culture in their own different ways. And if you're not in someone's shoes, you can't understand what they're experiencing. And if we remember that and also take into account that our decisions around a drug like this affect other people, right? If you take this drug and it's not indicated for you by your doctor, that is driving up the price for someone else that has diabetes, that is struggling to get access to a drug that's really changed their life. When we are dealing with these type of topics, it's really hard. It's different for everybody. It's a touchy subject. There's a lot of emotions that can come out and mental anguish that we can deal with around weights and health and all of those things. But I would encourage you to remember the reason why you're making a choice and then trusting that if that choice is the best for you, it doesn't matter what other people say, while also understanding that you may not understand exactly why someone is doing something. And so trying to have grace for everyone's different positions can be a very helpful thing. There's so much more that could be said about the tie-ins between diet culture, ozempic, gastroparesis, effects that we're seeing not only happen to people, but happening to everyone as we navigate this new wave. 
I, as I said, am not an expert on Ozempic. I am a dietitian that loves to research things and focus on evidence-based education and make an awareness around how diet culture can play into these things. And I hope that you feel like you've stepped away from this episode with a more widened, with a widened viewpoint on this conversation. If you want to continue having this conversation, please feel free to reach out to me via DM. If you have another episode request that you'd like to see, you are more than welcome and I would love for you to submit an episode request at the link in the show notes. All of the other links I have mentioned throughout this episode are also going to be there with my Instagram, with the first Ozempic episode link, and more. And I don't think that we can rate this on a scale of 1 to 10 today with the diet culture nature of it. When I first originated this podcast, I thought it would be so much easier to rate things on a scale of 1 to 10 in terms of how diet culture they, diet culture they are, but isn't that kind of a, a short a shortcoming in my mindset in and of itself, considering how could diet culture ever be that simple? <laughs> Anyways, guys, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for listening. And I really hope to see you here next week.